0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about genes again, I know, but this is an important topic and it's actually a new approach. This study was published um, a few months ago. I was lucky enough to get Dr. Thomas Roland, who's uh, who I'm probably pronouncing his name incorrectly, who's a researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research in Paris. Um, his lab works specifically on looking at genotype, phenotype relationships in the context of autism spectrum disorders, and also focusing on those rare variants that are associated with autism. So before I get anything else wrong, I wanna give Dr. Roland an opportunity to correct the pronunciation of his last name and introduce himself.
1: Uh, Thank you, Alicia. Uh, So actually uh, I spent four years in America, so I know that uh, people uh, use Roland as uh, <laughs> for my my last name, but it's, it's in French. It's Thomas Roland, so Ooh, it's okay. very anyway. So yeah, thank you very much again. And uh, so I'm a research scientist, as you said, uh, and I work uh, at the Institut Pasteur. Um, I'm actually part of the CNRS, so the Centre for National Research in France um and uh yes so we had uh, this uh, this paper that took that took us like five or six years to prepare uh and to get accepted uh so a lot of work a lot of collaborations with people uh in europe but also uh, ab- abroad so uh yeah i'm very happy to uh, introduce it to uh, a large audience and uh, thank you for the invitation
0: Thank you. Well, this paper um, appeared in Nature Medicine again a, a few months ago. The topic was looking at these rare genetic variants associated with autism, and you'll talk about what those are, um, and looking beyond just the autism or no autism diagnosis and, and how these genes influence different outcomes and then also um, autism specifically. So um, my first question is then, what are the roles of rare genetic variants and neurodevelopmental disorders and autism
1: okay so well the the role of the rare variants is really a historical role because um, when we started working on the genetics of of autism we know it's a it's a rare uh, genetic uh, uh, disorder and uh, what we wanted to see is whether there is a an easy way to translate genetics to phenotype. And the easiest way was to look at these rare variants, because the rare variants are the ones that are found in less than 1% of the population. And we can easily, let's say, um, uh, predict that it will be a, it will have an impact. So that's why it's rare variants and not common variants. Um, and in addition, in autism, it all started 30 or 20 years ago uh, with, with the, actually uh, Thomas Bourgeron's uh, first um, identification of rare variants in autism and it started with what we call de novo variants. So the, the de novo variants that are the ones that we see only in the in the child and not in the parents uh, or in other siblings in the family. And this was let's say easy to interpret because if this rare variant is only present in uh the the child with a diagnosis then we can uh, say that it will probably be associated with the diagnosis especially if it touches uh, uh, a gene that encodes a protein of the of the brain or a very important protein for the neurodevelopment you see what i mean so that's why we focus on rare variants in uh, in, in this particular paper given today's uh, uh metrics we have Basically, between 10 to 20% of individuals with autism for which we can find these rare variants in at least one autism-associated gene. As you probably know, uh, a lot of uh, autistic individuals also have uh, intellectual disability or, let's say, uh, cognitive impairments. And uh, when we go to these individuals, we can uh, find these rare variants in 30 to 40% of the cases. So we start to have a good uh, overview of what rare variants uh, do uh, in autistic populations.
0: And I always get the question that, uh, well, if it only affects you know, 10, 15, 20% of people affected with autism, why do people study them so much? And I would reply to that is that that's 20% of people with autism and they matter too. And also the genes that are the focus of these rare variants, right? So the genes that are involved clearly have an important role in brain development, right? The, the way that these genes are expressed and the role that they have on different outcomes is really, really important for everyone who is concerned about this or everyone on the spectrum, not just for those with a rare genetic variant.
1: Just to jump on this particular point, because you say, why do we focus on this 20%? Well, actually 20% is today. And we also, we already know that we only touched the, the tip of the iceberg. And we know that there are other genes. We know that there are other types of variants. and it's only by starting somewhere, and this, this somewhere was the rare variance in synaptic genes and genes of the neural development or the brain architecture. But we already know that we need to relax these thresholds to go and, and find other genes that might actually be less um, penetrant, let's say. Uh, we, we'll have a, less, a, a weaker effect, let's say, uh, but will be important also for other cases uh, of, uh, of autism.
0: That's a good point. That yeah, that's a good point too. So in this study, you weren't actually looking So there's, there's autism related genes, but I want to say that you weren't actually looking just at the hundred plus genes that have already been associated with autism. You were doing your own analysis. So, um, explain how, if you could explain, um, how that worked,
1: it's a very important question. It's actually, uh, we, we thought a lot about this and we had many questions. Every time I, I presented this uh, these results at conferences here and there, people are like, well, what do you call a, a autism-associated gene? So what we wanted to do is to try to be exhaustive enough Uh, but uh, not integrate too much uh, of uncertainty for some of the genes. So what we did is we gathered some databases or lists of genes that are used by the community of clinicians uh, that are really uh, the ones who work with uh, people with autism and their families uh, so, this means the SPARC uh, list of genes, for example. This is a, a consortium uh, uh, that aims at um, sequencing 50,000 individuals with autism, and they have a genetics committee who selects the genes based on, on uh, multiple lines of evidence for association with autism. And these genes, when they will sequence the, the individuals and their families, they can uh, send the result to the family as a first uh, diagnosis, let's say, of a genetic diagnosis of, of, the, of the kid. So that's one of the lists that we used. Uh, we also use the Simon's Foundation uh, list of genes. This is a, really a reference in the field of genetic of autism uh, where they scored the genes according to the, the type of evidence they have uh, in, in genetic studies and uh, we'll use only the score one, which are the ones that have been seen at least twice in two independent cohorts. Uh, and the final list that we used was also the, the, the list from the Satterstrom and, and colleagues' cell paper in 2020, uh, where uh, they also uh, measured an enrichment at the gene level uh, between autism cases and controls, and uh, we selected the, the 102 first top genes uh, that were really highly enriched for autism. So to also answer your question, we also went uh, a little uh, further by selecting a list of genes that are constrained during evolution. Uh, Why did we do this? Uh, There are several reasons for that. But uh, the two main reasons is uh, that first, these uh, genes are um, selected uh, against having mutations uh, in humans, uh, so we believe that uh, touching these genes will probably have an effect, somewhat effect, but some effect at least. And mm-hmm. the second reason is that uh, when when these measures of uh, constraint on the gene were emerging, uh, the the genetics, the autism genetics community uh, used used it and saw that there was an enrichment usually an enrichment in in, uh, mutations in these genes also in the autistic uh, cohorts. So it's less strong uh, than the ones that are directly associated with autism, but there are some genes in there that probably will uh, also be important for for autism uh, genetic diagnosis.
0: There are all these different autism genes, but they don't act in there. Say say there's a hundred, so there's more than a hundred, but say there's a hundred that have a strong link to autism. This probably means if someone has a mutation of this gene, they are more likely to have autism than someone who doesn't have this gene. And they also have their own associated syndromes. So um, I talk a lot about these rare genetic syndromes, Phelan McDermott syndrome, Angelman syndrome, some of the other syndromes that are associated with, with autism but these genes they don't all work a hundred different ways so they don't also act on the exact same way but they also tend to converge on different biological mechanisms. So it isn't just that like you know one controls your heart rate and one controls your eye color they tend to converge on common pathways. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that so that we know that there's not you know a hundred different diverse kind of, um, biological mechanisms associated with autism and developmental disorders?
1: What we know now is uh, based on these rare variant screening uh, in in uh, genetic cohorts, is that it seems to converge onto, uh, let's say, two main pathways. And these two main pathways are related to uh, neurodevelopment and uh, development in general. Uh, one, the first one, uh, who was actually first identified by uh, the lab of Thomas Bourgeron, uh, is the synaptic pathway. So the neural genes, neural, neural vaccines, uh, the shank proteins uh, that are really the scaffold of the of the synapse. So meaning that they um, their function is to make sure that the signal goes through the uh, between two neurons uh, and so that there is a, a connection between the two neurons and then the second uh, pathway is uh probably a little more uh has a function in probably a little more than just brain uh, it's the chromatin remodeling so the chromatin remodeling is the state of the chromatin will determine whether your your genome is accessible for transcription or translation of proteins okay so the the fact that the proteins are expressed and when you touch to when you touch one of these genes that encode uh protein remodeling uh, proteins then maybe you you alter a little bit the structure of the, of the chromosome and then the proteins are not accessible anymore to some other proteins and that affects probably a lot more than just syn but uh, but we don't know yet if, if it's really specific to genes that are expressed in the brain or, uh, or if you can find the same in some other syndromes that are related to autism or not.
0: Chromatin, for uh, listeners of this podcast, is one of those epigenetic targets. So when we talk about there are things that are part of the DNA sequence, and then there are also tags on the DNA that help turn the gene on and off. That's what chromatin Uh, refers to. So it's good to see that these epigenetic marks are, in fact, getting more attention and getting more study and being recognized for their important role. So the question really was around um, the prevalence of these uh, rare variants in um, those without an autism diagnosis and potentially the, the, the broader kind of spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders. So tell us what you found because i want people to listen because this is really really interesting <laughs>
1: um so yes uh this large sample allowed us to basically have a, a real uh enrichment measure with statistical power for uh, virtually all the genes associated with autism these past 20 years so we could measure this enrichment and and first of all we could identify individuals that were carrying variants without having a diagnosis. So we measured the enrichment between uh, the cases, uh, the autism uh, individuals and their siblings, and also with the general population. And we found this 1%, uh, a little less than 1% of undiagnosed individuals who were carrying variants in these autism-associated genes. And those were the 1% that we wanted to understand better, because you can imagine that what we can understand from from these individuals could uh, give us uh, a lot of keys to understand what makes someone um, resilient to a mutation and what makes someone not uh, uh, able to cope with the effect of this variant. Uh, And that has many, many um, implications in terms of uh, genetic counseling, in terms of... uh, the genetic uh, diagnosis of autism, uh, and it could also have a strong implication on on, uh, the the way that we understand autism in the general population, like how we... It's not like you have a mutation and you are autistic with cognitive impairment and blah, blah, blah. It's actually you have one mutation and you have some chance to be autistic and some other chance to actually have another uh symptom uh, like cognitive impairment or anything like this so th- again this one percent were allowing us to ask these questions and that's what we went on to do uh, and uh the uk biobank was really well a well-set uh, cohort with a lot of different phenotypes so we could basically ask the association of a variant with any phenotype in the uk biobank and that was eighteen thousand different phenotypes health-related or social or economics or uh, even cognitive function and uh, and what when we did this we tested the 18000 potential associations and we found that the only ones that were really at the top of the the statistical uh signal were the ones associated with cognitive impairment income decreased income uh decreased qualification level and increased material deprivation and it was like whoa okay so that means that in this one percent what we see the strongest signal is they have a decrease they have a decreased uh, quality of life in terms of uh, the income in terms of the qualification level they can reach and in terms of the material deprivation
0: so yeah so that that's the part that i thought i found was interesting so for that one percent i want to reinforce what are the associations you mentioned cognitive performance educational level so is that are these deterministic for those things how are how does that work is it deterministic for poor cognitive performance for does it mean a lower level qualification like how does that how does that work or is it still just associated
1: well that's the that's the question we are trying to answer now but uh, okay. the, the answer that we believe is probably, uh, uh right that's the working hypothesis let's say is that it's not only the the genetic variants not only just the rare variants it's about like because we said there is an association yeah okay but it's not a causal relationship it's just an mm-hmm. association if you take all the va- all the people who carry the variant then you see this little this little decrease in let's say salary qualification level cognitive function mm-hmm. But it's it's a, it's an average. It's not something mm-hmm. that is deterministic at all, because we can see even for the same gene, there are some people who are very low in terms of the social economic status, and mm-hmm. some other that are really thriving, really like it's all okay, all green light. Yeah. So it's really about now. It's really about trying to understand what make these people. Um, having a lower quality quality of life and what makes these people uh, thrive in society. And this is probably uh, not just genetic variants. It's probably going to be also the environment. It's also going to be uh, the way that we uh, understand autism in the society and we provide the right support to the people who actually need support and not probably just only based on the genetic... Uh, discovery but also on the um the genetic background of the individual and the needs that he has that or she has uh, that other people might not need So it's really embracing the complexity both at the uh, the effect of the genetic variant side and also by taking into account the difference between all the individuals uh in terms of environment in terms of how they, are embedded in society.
0: And I want to again, kind of state that there won't be one thing. So if people are thinking, okay, you know, okay, what are you going to study next? What's that one thing that you want to investigate from an epidemiological perspective about the factors that promote resiliency? It's not going to be one thing. We're going to be looking at many, many different things. So um, I wish it would be more simple if it was just one thing and that we could target that one thing, but it's unfortunately not going to be that simple.
1: It's definitely did... not going to be so that simple. And uh, there are many uh, many labs are already uh, trying to decipher these mechanisms. And uh, the, the lab I'm, I'm working in is also embedded in a European project that's just started that exactly uh, targets... Uh, the, the risk and resilience factors in uh, in large cohorts. So.
0: Uh, I did want to mention an example of a gene. And so one of the genes that you mentioned in your paper, and one that I think our listeners are familiar with, is this Phelan-McDermid um, syndrome, which the gene of interest is um, SHANK3. So you had looked specifically in your paper about um, individuals with a SHANK3 mutation, but no autism diagnosis. So shank three is associated with family McDermott syndrome, which, um, you know, is, is very similar to autism, but uh, has kind of similar heterogeneity, but individuals with family McDermott syndrome commonly have, um, intellectual disability, seizures, hypotonia, feeding problems. There's a diverse, um, impact and, a uh, high percentage of them also have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. So in this case, you looked specifically at individuals with a Shank 3 mutation, but not any sort of autism diagnosis.
1: One of the one of the reasons why the variants may be less, may have a, a lower impact is that uh, they fall in some kind of different isoforms of the gene. And we know that shank3 can be expressed in two ways, two main ways. We, there are probably other ways, but what we call ways is isoforms. Those isoforms are products of the genes that are um, associated with the complexity of the genome. So the, the genome is basically, in, in shank3, you have two versions of the, of the protein, okay? You have a long version and a short version, and it has been seen uh, and reported before that touching the long isoform will have a less of a less of an impact than touching the short isoform. And what we see is that the the two mutations that we have seen in undiagnosed individuals were in the long isoform of Shank three, meaning that probably uh, the the one version of the protein that is more abundant in the in the in the brain. Is the shorter version, so that means that it will have a lower impact on the on the brain. But uh, again, this is a this is something that we have to check. We have to need we need a larger sample to test this hypothesis, um, and we also have to do it in the Phelan-McDermid syndrome population to to see uh, because in Phelan-McDermid, there there is a variety of uh, there is also heterogeneity in terms of the length of the deletion the 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 region of the deletion, And we're also working on that.
0: Thanks, I know this isn't one paper that's gonna answer every single question. So I'm glad there are some other questions to answer. We talked about how in that 1%, right? So you have the 1% and then within that 1%, not all of them are cognitively disabled. Not all of them have the same features. But what is kind of the spectrum?
1: So again, as I said, the the, the association we measured was um, an average uh, decline uh, in terms of cognitive uh, capacity or income or anything. But when we look at the the actual income, the actual uh, qualification level of the individuals, they're actually not that different in terms of the 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 distribution in between the carriers and the non carriers it's it's um it's just that you have a little more individuals in the lower uh part of the of the distribution but really uh that's why we, we look at it uh, in the paper we have this little display item that shows for income how it's how it is and also for fluid intelligence so we see that there's a little shift but really, the distribution between the carriers and the non-carriers is not different in terms of uh, where the people are. Just have a little more people on the on the lower part of the distribution. But really, you have people that are just going perfectly nice in terms of uh, quality of life and social economic status, and some others are really low. And uh, but uh, it's just a question of proportion of individuals. But we have people from All around the spectrum for all of the 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 features that we looked at.
0: And another, my final question, which we kind of discussed earlier, but um, what could potentially be the mechanism? And you could talk. We could talk broadly. I don't need a particular genetic pathway. So. What are the sorts of influences that could promote resiliency or what are the sorts of things that that scientists, maybe not you specifically, but other researchers should be looking towards um, in terms of, you know, why there is this this variability in those with with rare genetic mutations
1: um the the one avenue that i know uh, the best is the the genetic parts um because okay. I, I know the genetics more than than the environment so in terms of genetics uh one could think uh, of um the genetic background so um my my bo- my boss in the lab usually refers to uh, the effect of these mutants as uh, Let's say you throw you throw uh, um, a light a lighten up cigarette uh, in the desert, uh, and you have no. It's not in the desert. Let me think about that because I know it in French, but I never, I never oh, actually, okay. I never actually You could say it in, in French and,
0: ex- and then explain it. It would, it would be good for our listeners to the listeners to get a new French expression.
1: <laughs> it's, it's not really a French expression. It's like, oh. so it, I, I'm going to say it in French and then I'm going to try okay. to translate it in, in English. So in okay. French, it's Vous jetez un mégot de cigarettes uh, en Corse, en plein été, Il y a des arbres, ça va prendre feu. Vous jetez le même mégot de cigarette en Bretagne en, en hiver, ça n'aura pas d'effet. So, it means that if you throw something like a hot cigarette butt into uh, a, a summertime forest that is very dry, it will take fire, like, instantly. Now you throw the same cigarette butt, lighten up, in uh, uh, a forest in winter, uh, or somewhere where it rains all day long, it will, it will never uh, take fire. So it depends on the back, like on the environment where the, the variant falls. And the first environment where the, li- the variant falls is the genome, the entire genome. So the entire genome might actually be one of the, the, the ways that the variant will be um, Uh, buffered uh, using some kind of uh, surrounding genetic variants or maybe even other genetic variants in other genes that we have just never really looked at because those are resilient genes and not risk genes. Hmm. Uh, For example, I have a PhD student now who is working on the regulatory variants. So maybe it's a kind of the way that it's regulated. You, You lose one version of your gene, but maybe the other one is actually the one that is more expressed. So then, it can you can cope with it. So that's one, that's one way. That's uh, also the, way, the That's also the avenue that people working on the polygenic score are uh, are u- are using and are uh, hypothesizing. And there are some evidence that there is um, an over transmission of uh, small effect variants to uh, to autistic individuals compared to their siblings uh but but we haven't seen yet that uh there is an over uh, an under transmission to the ones that do not have a diagnosis so maybe mm-hmm. that's one other hypothesis that we can that we can ask um then for uh the environment i guess the the one first hypothesis that i want to that i want to test and i'm not the only one is uh, actually the sex because mm-hmm. we know that there is this uh very important difference in sex ratio for diagnosed girls and boys. There you are know, many more boys than than girls who get diagnosed, and we really want to understand uh, whether there is uh, something that make girl like genetic uh, that make girl uh, less uh, um, affected by the variants. Um, In our our study, we haven't seen a difference. So we couldn't see that the girls were less carrying variants Mm -hmm. or more carrying variants. We didn't see that. Um, So yeah, the sex is probably uh, uh, one of the first avenues that we want to look at.
0: Yeah, we had talked about that earlier, and I think that's really important. And I think that epidemiologists could also throw in dozens of other hypotheses as well. So it could be anything from socioeconomic status. It could be, um, which can be measured by maternal education. It could be um, the the place where you live, um, your education, your background, um, whether or not you have access to certain services or not. So um this doesn't affect of course your genetics but it does could affect your outcome so or it could affect a diagnosis. So is there anything else that we didn't get to cover that you want to mention about the paper?
1: Um I think something that I didn't say and that could really uh, interest people from uh, from both the clinical and also from the large public uh, of autism is that we have so we have uh, asked to, we have identified the mutations in this one hundred eighty five genes of autism, but there are some genes that we have just never found mutated in the two hundred thousand individuals without a diagnosis and we have seen them some of them we have seen them in mutated in more than 10 autistic individuals so we have examples in this okay. list of 185 genes there are some genes that are really 100 penetrant
0: okay
1: and the uh, scn2a is one example which is a very well-known autism gene um and Yeah, I just wanted to mention this because I I think it's important that people understand it's not all the genes that we are, that are incompletely penetrant and we know nothing about. And it's some genes for which we have less of a direct uh, association and some we have a a very, very strong association with autism.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. So SCN2A was a gene that I was... um, going to mention, and yes, if you have a mutation in that gene, uh, you'll likely have a number of different issues, including autism, probably the more severe is seizures um, that those families experience. So
1: yeah. And the thank same, you
0: so much. Oh, go ahead.
1: Sorry. And the same goes for uh, CHD8, for example, which is uh, also associated with micro or macrocephaly. Uh, okay. So th- those are like very strong impact uh, genes and and there is no way, I guess, I think, that we won't be able to find anyone uh, from a from a non-cognitive impairment profile uh, who carry these kind of mutations in these genes. Uh, but the uh, future will tell.
0: Well, thank you so much. And I enjoyed talking to you. And uh, if anyone has any questions, please email me. You guys know my email address. Mm.